and so that was part of the the charisma of the species. It's not that it's just this pink wormy thing, you know, as <laughs> you put it, that Sorry. you know that that lives in some hole somewhere. Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. I'm Billy Brown with Tony Crowsdale and Dan Durant. Great. And we are, in a few minutes, are talking with Dan about what he does in Philadelphia and also everywhere else. But first, we're going to be off with a reminder. If you like us, like us on iTunes or whatever app you're using. You can always reach out to us by sending us an email at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter at herb wildlife cast and find us on facebook to get in touch with us there and if you observe urban wildlife or any urban life it can be plants it can be insects it can be snails it can be birds it can be snakes it can be coyotes you can not limited to those things not limited you could go beyond all of those things you can give us a call at 267-603-3219 again 267 267- 603-3219 and leave us a message there or if you want to pull out your phone um, and record a little note on your phone iPhone or Android whatever you can always do a little um, voice notes a little wildlife bling uh, <laughs> urban wildlife we're going to make a video of that eventually we're going to make a video we got to get Tony in a big chunky sweater and we'll have him dancing around and doing his Drake impersonation <laughs> I want to have like Drake's involved you like with actual drakes behind you? Yeah, like like male ducks. All right. So we can do it. We gotta make it happen. All right. My backup dancer agreed. <laughs> so we're ready to go. All right. So with that, I want to introduce our host. So I ran into Dan not immediately because of him, but because of a tortoise that was accompanying him. Gigi and I were um, down at Bartram's garden, which is this really great public garden and sort of natural space lots of native plants lots of native plants which is which is the estate of the bartrams if you know anything about early north american um, natural history especially plant collection but also other stuff uh, the bartrams are major major figures and the city now has their property as as like a public park basically yeah and i was about to say what dan was doing but we but he can say it well uh yeah so that was my students tours actually and uh, definitely a conversation starter. <laughs> We're out there pick up and chicks. yeah, pick up chicks. <laughs> Tortoises are great for that. But um, we're out there, and actually, we just started this project where we're planting all these different species of milkweed. Right now, we're up to I think five, and we're looking at all these different native milkweeds to see which are most preferred by monarch butterflies, or specifically, basically, which they lay more eggs on and have more caterpillars on, uh, and also which ones are best their survivorship because you can imagine uh maybe monarchs like one species an awful lot but they don't do well on it right it's possible that's the case and so we want to see is there one that they just do excellent on and they end up having more adults that are healthy and have even more babies and we like to know that because right now nobody actually knows that weirdly enough so, like what they prefer and what they do yeah on. we yeah. know they like milkweeds and people say that they like one species more than the others but it's all anecdotal. Nobody's ever done an actual rigorous scientific yeah. experiment. So, And we were doing this experiment in Philadelphia. Yes. Why any particular reason why Bartram's Garden? 
uh, because they have the space and like us. Okay. So, <laughs> they're really nice and they let us use their, their land. So, it's, I mean, it's a great spot, right? It's near the river. It's actually right near where two different kind of land formations come together. You've got the coastal plain and you've got the Piedmont. So, it's, it's really good. And it'll grow all the species of milkweeds that we want. We can put all of them out there. So, it's a great spot. What, as someone who's growing to love milkweed, what kind of milkweed species are you planting? Oh, that's a good question. I, I don't know if I can tell you now. All right, I'll tell you. Okay, <laughs> I think we have. Uh, I think we're up to we're up to five right now. Maybe a sixth one that we're adding. Uh, we've got the three big ones that kind of everybody talks about. We got common milkweed, but nobody likes it. So we hope it's not the most attractive to monarchs. <laughs> it's, it's also all over Barsham's it, garden. It's elsewhere. Also, yeah, yeah <laughs> it's really common, but it's not showy. So if you tell people oh, you okay. should plant this plant. They don't want to the do that. The flowers are nice with these like pale. Kind I of like it, but I'm weird. Most people right, don't like the it. The leaves look really cool too. Yeah, okay, I got we are, going we are the... not normal guys. All None right. of the three of us are normal. <laughs> There's some in the vacant lot at the end of my block. If you want, yeah, <laughs> it's, like... it's not hard to find. <laughs> but what we'd love to see is that one of the really showy ornamental yeah, types of species. Weed. Butterfly weed is another one we're studying, and then we got swamp milkweed. That's a pretty one. That's a nice one, and we have reason to believe that may be our winner, but we don't know yet. We also have two other species that we just started planting. One which is so rare, um, it's amazing. We just found this giant population. Me and my good friend and colleague, uh, Jason Sefko, we found a spot in New Jersey where we saw hundreds and hundreds of green comet milkweed. And mm. there are almost no populations, large populations left around. So we found this giant population. Green comet? Yes. Green comet milkweed. It looks like a bunch of little missile tubes coming off. It's crazy looking. Okay. It's a very weird looking flower. Um, doesn't look like any of the other milkweeds. And, uh, and then we're also doing uh, now probably uh, purpuracins, purple milkweed, mm. which is beautiful. So, Dan, we didn't actually start with the general introduction to you. Um, <laughs> how does, how, professionally, how do you end up testing milkweed as fodder for, for, for uh, monarchs? Well, I'm an entomologist and I'm an ecologist, too. I don't even know which I like to call myself more. I think I consider myself an ecologist that works on insects. Okay. Um, and... You know, I, I'm very, very interested in ways that we can look at insects in a beneficial light. You know, when often when people say, you know, how do I get rid of this insect? Or aren't most insects pests? I get this all the time. I'm trying to show people how... do I get how, this out of my yard? Yeah, exactly. Right, right. <laughs> what do I spray to do this, get rid of this problem? And um, I'm trying to show how important insects and plants can be and the way that they interact with each other, right? I mean, that's most of life on this planet. Are insects and plants yeah. interacting with each other? That's the majority of life. I am a professor at Drexel University, and I also teach a few other places. I teach right now at the Barnes Foundation Arboretum School. They have a horticultural certificate program, and I am an adjunct professor there. And uh, I give a bunch of different master naturalist programs and just give talks over the place. And um, one of the things I'm really happy about that has, has really started moving along is my new nonprofit, the Mid-Atlantic Native and Threatened Insect Zoo, or Mantis, yeah. with a Z, right? So um, <laughs> we're trying to be clever. I don't know if it works, but, you know. It works. <laughs> Good. Glad to hear someone thinks so. Um, it's either a nonprofit or it's a rapper. You should do, I know you overcommit, you should do a damn insect podcast. You seem okay. like you'd be a natural for it. I could. I should probably do something. We could We could keep talking about that. It's something, it, uh, it we thought of a spin-offs already, even though we're already, even though we're still trying. We don't have time to do that. <laughs> but I want to do. If all I got, if all I got to do is talk, then I can do it. Yes, <laughs> well, you, you're very good at talking, and and, uh, and, and that's that's hard thing to do. 
But I'm a big fan of the stuff you should know world of podcasts. Yeah, yeah. And I often thought it'd be great if if like, we kind of yeah. if we kind of did like or at least facilitated kind of like a wildlife channel. I love that. You know. Yeah. And and I mean, what I tell students is I'm like I'm a professional myth destroyer. That's what I do. I take things you've been told that are bullshit and yeah. take them down. That's what we do. That's my whole job. Is things you thought were true that aren't. I want to help you know it is true. You know? Kind of like how that and that snake you saw in the lake in Pennsylvania is not a water moccasin. <laughs> you know, the, yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Stuff like that. You know. Oh god, there's so many things that people say. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And they got me. That's like a song idea. It wasn't a brown recluse that bit you. It wasn't <laughs> a brown recluse that bit you. Yeah, that's exactly. A song. Yeah. Well, just the, like all the like. Yes, I've seen the eagle. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, or, like, or just like, by the way, eagles aren't rare anymore. So, what does mantis do? Well, we are we're basically trying to get people to understand how amazing, in a positive way, the insects are. Right? Because everybody yeah. thinks about insects and they have all kinds of ideas, but when you come right down to it. Over 99.9% of insects are not pests. And everybody thinks that it's, oh, well, I know there's some beneficial insects, but most of them are pests, right? I get this all the time. So few of them. Maybe 800, 1,000 species at most. Yeah. Out of literally one to 10 And locally here, like a few dozen tops. Oh, I mean, yeah. Not, well, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know the exact number, but I'm just it's not head. a ton. Yeah. Right, yeah, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. It's not a ton. And, uh, you know, you literally can't live without insects. And I don't think people realize how important it is. You don't have soil. You yeah. don't have flowers that are pollinated. You don't have fruits. Yeah. Um, you know, vast majority of all of our fruit and vegetable crops are pollinated by insects. You know, you need them. <laughs> you can't survive them. You don't have birds. Yeah. You don't have pretty much anything. There's no life without insects. And what will happen is I'll bring these beautiful insects in to show a bunch of school kids. And they'll look at them and they'll say, wow, is that from when you were in Panama? I'm like, no, that's from New Jersey. That's not yeah. from far away, right? <laughs> and you go and you see some nature special, right? It's always about Africa or South America or Southeast yeah. Asia. And those are cool places. I'm not saying they're not. But yeah. kind of in a way, zoos and natural history museums and nature specials, they all give you this idea that cool nature is not near where you live. It's yeah. so far away. Yeah, it's cool. Look at it. But it's, it's, out, it's out in Africa. Whereas I want people to realize there's all these amazing things here in Philadelphia. You don't need to go to the tropics to find yeah. cool things, you know? Yeah. Like Necrophila Americana. Exactly. <laughs> Where do you find Necrophila Americana? I found one of dead raccoon in Jersey. Okay. Some other places nearby. Yeah. yeah. They're around. Do you see them in Philly? Yeah, absolutely. And this is a scavenger so, beetle? It's a burying beetle. Okay. Or carrion beetle, I guess. It's the same. Are these pattern. the black and orange ones that are. There's ones that are black and orange, black and yellow. Oh, but they they sort of sort of bury a mouse or something in the ground. Yeah, lay eggs. And, some of them, okay. yeah, some of them do that, and they and they, um, you know, so it's kind of disgusting. A lot of people think, but if you look at them, they're actually quite pretty. You know, they're actually quite nice. They looking. are, yeah, 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 yeah. So they don't smell great, but you know. Hey, again, there's another insect service. You like having dead things around all the place? <laughs> Probably not. So thanks some uh, burying. Thanks some maggots for yeah. taking care of that. Maggots and ants <laughs> and scavenger beetles, burying beetles. We're gonna lead off our first piece. We're gonna listen to. Um, I had, I'll back up. I had been talking to. Um, I'm not sure I'll include all this, but I had been talking to a uh, a reporter about raccoons in Germany. And this was a nature science reporter who lived in England but was German and did a lot of stuff for a German magazine. And then he had referred me to somebody else who we'll hear from later on in the season about the raccoons. Are they really Nazi raccoons? We'll find out. But 
the the raccoons that were released in Germany in the 30s and now are 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 there. They can't get rid of them. So then I was like, all right. By the way, do you have any stories? I've gotten the habit of asking this of talking to somebody about one thing. Like, if you got something, if you is there an urban wildlife or nature thing where you live that I'm not asking about, but if someone said, hey, what's the coolest thing happening in your city nature-wise you would recommend? And he said, well, I live in York in England, and we've got this thing called the tansy beetle, which is quite rare, just seems to occur mostly in York, England. And I'll start by saying tansy beetle, and I'll say, Dan, family-wise, like, where does this fit into the beetle world? It's a chrysomelid beetle or a leaf beetle. Okay. And um, it has a wide range across northern Europe and to Asia. But aside from in the Netherlands, for some reason, um, it's in decline all across its range. It feeds on a, a basically kind of a daisy, a kind of aster called the, the tansy, hence tansy beetle, which my co-host and guest host just informed me grows all over the place in the America, in the, in the United States. It's an invasive I, plant. It's an invasive plant. I just haven't noticed it yet, as happens with me and the whole aster family that I just keep finding more of them and I don't know what the hell they are and one of those is probably a tansy next time I see one I'm going to be like oh you're the tansy um, any case it's native to England so the beetle um, its stronghold is this very historic small city of York no you're thinking New My York family is from York your York family from... keeps popping up in all these different ways your from... family came over with William Penn right I'm from Yorkshire I, you know Yorkshire okay Rosales. My wife's from York Pennsylvania there you go. We have a whole lot of York and and post York, the not new New York. Um, I'm also a big fan of York peppermint patties. There you go. Who isn't? Who isn't? So refreshing. <laughs> um, anyway, the Tansy Beetle Project or campaign is uh, or is is a project or program of Bug Life, which is a lottery funded invertebrate preservation conservation in it, or set of programs in the UK whose motto is saving the small things that run the planet and Sophie Badrick or Sophie coordinates uh, the public outreach and engagement campaign for bug life. Yeah it's Sophie Badrick and I'm the Tansy Beetle Conservation Officer with Bug Life. Um, it's a small iridescent green beetle it's about the size of your little fingernail and it's only found on the banks of the river ooze in york and as its name suggests it's only found on the tansy plant so it's um yeah it's, it's quite rare and um it's a beautiful little beetle it's best seen in uh, sort of august time which is just at the end of the summer over here and seeing it on top of the the this beautiful coppery sheened beetle on top of the yellow tansy plants is fantastic well, it's never been, um, there's, there's never been huge numbers, uh, but it has been more widespread throughout the UK. But due to sort of changes in farming practices and changes in the way that we manage rivers and things like invasive species, we have um, a problem over here with a plant called Himalayan balsam, which can just shade out any other plants and it spreads along watercourses. So things like that has just meant that the, the plant, the tansy plant, which is its its food source, has has constricted and therefore the tansy beetle has as well. Um, and then other things like um, flooding in the summer can, can really hit the numbers. That's at the time when there's larvae and eggs on the plants and if they get washed off washed off and washed downstream they die immediately so increases in summer flooding and, and a, a, a contraction of its its habitat have sort of combined to make the numbers um, smaller and smaller but we are doing quite a lot of work and last week I was able to sort of announce that actually tansy beetle numbers in 2015 were up by 3,000 <clears> were up by 3,000 on the year before so we are the work that we're doing it's um 
it is working. It is working. We are getting those numbers back up again, which is great. It's tw about about twenty four thousand in total. Um, it's it's uh, it's all sort of rough figures as they always are, but there is quite an intensive um, surveying program that goes on in the August in, in August time, um, and that's very thorough. And it's been going on for quite a few years, so we've got quite a big bank of data. Um, so we can confidently say that numbers are definitely up. Um, and as we say, 24,000, it sounds like quite a lot, but they're so confined as well that certain things, you know, uh, somebody deciding that they didn't want the tansy anymore on their patch of land or as I say, flooding or if we had um, a lot of Himalayan balsam coming in and, and shading out the tansy would have quite a big impact um, on those numbers. How did it end up with its last remaining population or one of its last two remaining populations in the middle of a, of a small city like York? I think that um, one of the reasons that that's happened is um, because York itself is quite flat and it's got a lot of floodplains and a lot of hay meadows. So that sort of river bank, um, river edge hasn't been developed because it's always had that the, the sort of tradi more traditional management and it's not been developed because it's floodplains. So that um, the yeah and, and and York is quite a historic city. So that there's there's also other restraints on development and 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 um, that's had an impact as well. So it's um it's probably a, a combination of different things. And then as soon as there was a bit more research done on this beetle that people were seeing, I think then the uh, the the need to conserve it was was um, realised. So people began to to feel protective and want to to save it. I think it's a great beetle to be involved with. And, and when I, I started in this role um, about seven or eight months ago, and I thought, right, the first thing I have to do is try and increase the knowledge uh, of, of the general public about the beetle. And so many people in York itself are very proud to have this beetle. They might not know anything about it other than it's green and it's shiny and it's small, but they're very, very proud. So there's a lot of enthusiasm to, to be involved. And one of the things I did when I started was trying to kind of um, get people to want to volunteer to, to do different bits and pieces of work was I attended quite a big event with the Royal Entomological Society and I was giving away free tansy plants that people could um, take away and, and try and grow on and the number of people that wanted them because they want to help but they just don't know how so it's been great from my position to to um, to be that focal point and to be able to facilitate all of that and and um, not only from the volunteers point of view to but to be talking to landowners or other charities or um, conservation organizations and to be advising them and to be able to then fit the volunteers and the people who want to get involved with the people who need a bit of help and, and want to maybe increase habitat or or do some work on some existing habitat and be able to join them together and, and get that work done and, and uh, hopefully have a positive impact on the beetles. Do you see sort of interest in the beetle sort of uh, then um, encourage interest in uh, entomology more broadly or, or into other kinds of um, habitat conservation? Is it is it serving as like a hook for other things? I certainly think so. And I think part of that comes from the fact that it gives people, it's quite an easy thing to look at. It's quite an easy thing to find as well. It's not a, something that you have to only go out on the, you know, when the temperature's right and when the light's right and when there's certain other foods around and when the leaves are on the trees or off the trees and that sort of thing. In 
um, sort of Easter time and at the end of the summer, if you walk to certain places in the in along the banks of the Ouse, you're guaranteed to see it. And I think that hooks people in and um, hopefully sparks an interest for them to want to learn a little bit more. Um, and that's where Bug Life, we kind of promote people to going towards our website because that's where all the information about other projects that we've got going on, that are all sorts of things um, people can find out that bit more or as I say if they've if they come along because they have heard about the tansy beetle and they're coming along to an event where I'm organizing some tansy planting um, then being able to get them outside and show them that bit extra it's not all sort of focused on the tansy we'll talk about um, if it's a hay meadow then we'll talk about the work that's gone on there or if we're right by the banks of the river then we'll talk about other bits and pieces and and talk about that riparian habitat along by the banks of the river so um I think it really is a hook and it's quite a nice, easy one. And um, it's definitely, definitely a, a lot of enthusiasm and people wanting to get involved and almost not knowing how. But this has really provided a sort of little platform for them to take that first step. Ow! Citizen science! As big animals that can walk around really easily, like how, how fragmentation or anything else can affect a really tiny beetle that doesn't disperse well and you're talking about these beetles as being very poor dispersers yeah a lot of them are either flightless or extremely poor flight abilities right so one of the other things is this they don't have gps they don't know where there's another good patch they have to cross some habitat that's totally not what they're looking for they often just won't do it right so they get stuck and historically when there were all these big wild areas they could have just moved along streams and rivers and would have found places now they get to gotta get across parking lots and you know cornfields yeah. and stuff like that, and that's not going to work. It's not like a butterfly that can get up in the air and yeah. flit along. And, yeah. And well, the thing is, even butterflies too, though. Sometimes people think, well, they can fly, so they'll just get away, and they don't know where the next habitat patch is. A sure. lot of times, they can't tell if it's too far away. They're just not going to leave that patch. Yeah. You know? So that's why even even if tansy is is isn't necessarily so reduced, it. It still, you know, they could end up. It, 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 what's the word? This is why. Why fragmentation can be bad. I mean that 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 you can have good habitat in patchy areas. Yeah. Um, but if the plants and animals of that habitat can't get from patch to patch easily, then if one patch just happens to get wiped out for, by a flood, then it can't get recolonized, and so this is disease disease hits one other patch and so you end up with the one patch remaining in york so there you go they're all islands you have to think of all natural areas as islands now because that's the way it is doesn't matter if they're surrounded by the ocean or desert or agricultural fields they're all inhospitable around these places asphalt um they're islands right that's what they are so so the the nice part about it that i liked and what sort of attracted me to this was the idea of like People in a town rallying around a beetle. I mean... What is England? It is England, I know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for, yeah. <laughs> well, it ha- hey, it happens in New England, too, actually. One of the tiger beetles I study, the cobblestone tiger beetle, I don't remember. I wish I knew the name of it. There's some town up in New England somewhere. It's like in Vermont, New Hampshire. Yeah. Yeah, Tony's going to find out. I don't one of those little states up there, yeah. And they have an entire festival every year for the cobblestone tiger beetle, which is just awesome. You know, so it does happen. Why is the cobblestone? They have to ask. Why is there something special about the cobblestone? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty rare now. Um, okay. Damming of rivers has obliterated most of our habitat, changing the way that rivers move. 
It's just hard. I'm gonna guess it's sort of the cobble, like the grout, sort of stone banks. Big yeah. stone cobblestone uh, bars. That's what they're looking for. Okay. So. All right. You flood rivers. You, you dam rivers. You do anything that changes the water levels and the way the water moves, and you end up they go away. Right. Adios. Cobblestone. Exactly. <laughs> um, so cool. I mean, is this? Do we think this is something that could happen in Philadelphia? Like, do we have anything that, or like people rallying around something rare? I don't know. I could see. Well, I, I look at the response to the. I mean, it wasn't a citywide, but there was a big response for the toads in the Roxbury. Roxbury that is Reservoir. a good, a good example. Wait, I don't even know about this. What are we talking? So about? So the Roxbury Reservoir. Yeah. Okay. This is the far northwest of the city. And Sad because I lived in Roxbury for a few months. But anyway. Oh. So there's. <laughs> Uh, toads breed in the Roxborough Reservoir, so they like which is an old abandoned, like unused reservoir. So it's just like a big flat marshy, marshy. It's area. not like full of water anymore. It's like marshy and like ephemeral. So they uh, will come from the surrounding other patches, from people's yards and whatnot, and they and they converge on the reservoir to breed, and they got across roads. So people will close off the roads, and it's like right about now. You go out there, and it's like it's like families and kids, and everybody's like. They, they've got like the road blocked off and it's like a little bit of a toad festival so I, I spoke too soon it is, it is definitely we got it um, so it's it shows that you can get people motivated about otherwise uncharismatic organisms I mean I guess the tansy beetles like very pretty toads yeah. are kind of have a cute look to them but they're not like it's not like getting people rallying around monarch butterflies which are big and majestic and, and they're wonderful and they're imperiled we need to rally around them but that's easy Compared to like a toad or a little beetle, I think. So I, think I agree. We could have. So we yeah we had a mini version of that with the toads replicating the Plainfield, New Hampshire's response to the <laughs> cobblestone tiger beetle. <laughs> yes. It's, wow. It's way to way to work it in there. <laughs> really good research. Crack research. Uh, <laughs> all right. So if you're in Plainfield and you want to drop us a note or or. It's not that big a city, but hey, about your cobblestone tiger beetles. We'd like to hear about them. Um, and I'll throw this pitch in. If you've got an urban wildlife wing um, about um, some neat, like, uh, I don't know, keystone's the wrong, wrong word, but some neat, like, mascot kind of animal for where you are that your city gets or your neighborhood gets all involved with and, and, and gets people out to support, you know, give us a call or uh, email us about it. Um, we'd love to to include a little note about that in the podcast. The next piece we're going to talk about, um, next interview we did, it was, was purely Tony's idea. But when he said it, I was like, I was embarrassed I hadn't thought of it first. Because um, I'm the reptile amphibian guy. Herp daddy. Yeah. I'm the herp daddy. Herp and Herp, herp, <laughs> <laughs> herp <God>. We've been <laughs> accumulating these catchphrases. <laughs> I see. Um, so, uh, and... But it was so obvious once Tony said the blind salamanders of Austin. Yeah, the Barton Springs salamander. So we're going to hear about it, how the city of Austin... Dirty punks go to swim. Where dirty punks go to swim. Yeah, this is Nathan Bendick, and my official title is Environmental Scientist Senior, and I work for the Watershed Protection Department at the city of Austin. Great. Um, And uh, in a nutshell, can you describe what you do for, for the Watershed Department? Yeah, so I'm I'm a team leader for our salamander conservation team, which right now consists of four full-time biologists and two temporary staff members. 
And our group has a number of responsibilities that range from habitat management for the species, population monitoring, so you know we're getting in the water and surveying them, as well as as well as the maintenance of a captive refugium that has over 500 salamanders. It is a building with a lot of aquaria in it, and it houses um, three species of salamander. Two, two are kind of the the target species: the Austin blind and the Barton spring salamanders. And this is a measure that's part of our habitat conservation plan. So I guess, you know, we'll get into some of these uh, details a little bit later about the, you know, sort of the species ecology and why we do yeah, yeah. this stuff. But suffice to say that it's 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 kind of like, you know, what almost what a zoo would do. So we just have a lot of animals in case uh, they go extinct in the wild or there's some catastrophe. Um, I like the backup situation. plan. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, it's a backup plan. There's still... Um, okay, as far as we can tell in the wild, um, you know, this hasn't happened yet, so it's just uh, a backup plan to go with our um, our incidental take permit and habitat conservation plan. Great. Um, so can you describe the, the cave salamander species that we're talking about? Um, for someone who's never seen one before, um, what do they look like? Where do they live? You know, roughly how do they live? Okay, yeah, so these, these salamanders are in the genus Eurycea. Um, spring and seep salamanders. They um, occur mostly in the eastern U.S. So for those, you know, like yourself, you're in Pennsylvania, you're going to see Eurycea bislineata. Uh, so the salamanders here in central Texas, same genus, similar type of thing, little uh, slender salamander, but they are neotenic. So they don't transform; they remain in that larval state. So when you're looking for these species, you know, in Pennsylvania, in the, in the East Coast, you're if you're looking for the larvae, you're flipping rocks in the stream, and that would kind of be the same thing we do here to find these. And their habitat can generally be described as groundwater, as well as groundwater-associated habitats in the Edwards Plateau region of Central Texas. So this is an area; um, the geology is limestone, and it's been somewhat uplifted. And over the past, say, 15 million years, dissolution of this limestone has occurred, eroded away, forming all these caves uh, in the area, sinkholes, and karst aquifers. We, we call this karst. So the salamanders are in this karst habitat wherever there's water. Um, so this ranges from, like, large cave streams that could be miles in length. You could find salamanders in, in these places. Um, to small hillside seeps, um, you know, we're talking a gallon per minute, a few gallons per minute, like very, very low flow rates. Um, and they can also be found in, in miles of, of first-order streams as long as they're, they're spring-fed. Uh, they've also been found using small bottle traps over 200 feet below ground, like in the, in the aquifer. So there are these groundwater monitoring wells people have for the aquifer. And, some cases, if you're lucky enough and you get access and you sample enough times, stick a bottle trap. If there's salamanders in there, you might catch one. And so a few have been caught this way. So it's it's pretty interesting. There's, there's only so many places we can go underground to observe these things, so there's not a whole lot we know about them when they're in these habitats, except when there are people crazy enough to go in there with uh, scuba gear or to the extent they can go without that kind of gear into these large caverns. Um, but once it gets smaller than that or more dangerous, we just don't know. So okay. wells are kind so, of one way we can look at these things. What are they? You mentioned them being sort of stuck in their 
sort of maturing in their larval state, I guess. Right. Um, but what does that actually look like? It's pretty much like a big larvae. <laughs> so <laughs> so they, they they have external gills, so that's kind of the one, you know, another adjective they use is parenobranchia. It's a big fancy word, meaning, you know, they keep their gills. Right, okay. so they keep their gills, and they get you know maybe two and a half inches long when they're adults. Some get a little bigger, some not as big, but around there, and um, kind of brownish in color. Now, the, that's for more of the quote surface dwelling species, and I'll qualify that in a moment. But some are strictly subterranean, so this is where you start to get things that look really neat and weird. So, like the first one described. Uh, Eurycea rathbuni in 1896, maybe? long right. time ago, right? They come to Texas and they found this thing coming out of a well. Okay, first of all, it's blind. It has no eyes. If you look at its face, it's just got two little dots. Okay. And they do nothing, as far as we know. Or not very much at all. And uh, they have no pigment. They're They're white. Um, and they have a range of other distinct morphological characteristics. Like, they have, like, this exaggerated shovel-shaped snout. Um, and they'll have, like, some can have long limbs and short trunks. So they're just they're just kind of weird-looking. And um, that's kind of the extreme for the subterranean species. And there are others that, uh, you know, we find in caves, and they have some of these characteristics, but not all. They're not so exaggerated. And so there tends to be this bit of a, a continuum in some cases. Oh. Right. So, yeah, we really haven't talked to, too much specifically about the ones we have here. So why don't we do that? Um, there are three species three species in Austin proper. Uh, okay. So there's the Barton Spring Salamander, the Austin Blind Salamander, and the Jollyville Plateau Salamander. Now, the Barton Spring Salamander was the first one described and recognized. So previously, you know, I'm mentioning all these salamanders in Texas, central Texas. Previously, people had lumped most of them together and just called them all Eurycia and Neotenes. And later, when um, with the advent of molecular genetic techniques, they're starting to see, oh, these, you know, even though they look pretty similar, they're actually very different. Um, and so the Barton Springs salamander was described in 1993 and from Barton Springs Pool. And this is uh, a group of four springs, Barton Springs, group of four springs in a park near the center of Austin. Okay. So it's a, it's a strange setting to have a species where that's the only place in the world it lives. And correct right. me if I'm wrong, but I think of this, I feel like I've seen pictures of this. This is a place where like people go out and go swimming and tubing and. Yeah. So one of the springs spot. is they've, it's, it comes out in the Creek in Barton Creek. And what they've done for the past hundred years, as far as I can tell, is they've dammed up this Creek and turned it into a swimming hole. And now it's it's you know it's a concrete dam and it's it's there's concrete all around it and it's developed. But if you go down to where the springs come out of the ground, there's salamanders there. And then there's three other springs, um, two of which have um, sort of concrete amphitheaters built around them. Well, one's concrete, one is like stone masonry, and then the other one's natural. And that's the last one we call Upper Barton Springs. That one's pretty. It's ephemeral. So. Sometimes there's water there, sometimes there's not. And when there's water, we'll usually see salamanders. Um, but in the pool, yeah, there's people swimming there year-round. The pool is open every single day of the year. Um, so people can go there and swim, and people love it. People love Barton Springs. It's It's been called the crown jewel of Austin. 
Um, so it's very important to the citizens. Right. So the the blind salamander was later discovered. Um, okay. Because, so these are this is a subterranean species, so they don't come up to the surface very much. And when they do, we think it's kind of like accidental, like they get flushed out or they they go the wrong way, and they probably don't have much of a chance. Gotcha. That's my that's my educated guess, right? We don't really know, uh, but we we see fewer of them. And so uh, one of our biologists, um, was it like 15 years ago now? Uh, saw a strange-looking salamander, and they're like, oh, you know, could this be something different? But it was small, so it was hard to tell. They raised it up, and sure enough, it was um, this completely different species. And so that one also only occurs at uh, these springs. But as I mentioned, we, we, we see it much less frequently, but they're both there. And what's interesting okay. is this is not the only spot where you have so-called surface and a subterranean morph living in the same spring. This also happens at San Marcos Springs where you have the Texas blind salamander, the one I mentioned earlier that was described in the 1800s, and then the San Marcos salamander, which lives mostly on the surface as far as we know. And the Jollyville Plateau salamander is the other salamander that lives in Austin, and they're a bit different because they live in the northwest part of town, and they're not in kind of this one spring system thing. And that um, sort of, you know, kind of leads me to why do I have a job and why does the city do anything, <laughs> right? So we have the Barton Spring salamander, and, and so back in the 90s, that was the only one we knew to be officially, like, unique in Austin, right? And this thing occurs in this swimming hole. Okay, and at the time there was, I think there was a developer that wanted to do a bunch of development along Barton Creek or somewhere in Austin. Now this is in the '90s, so I'm in, I'm in high school, so forgive me if I get my history's a little off here. Um, and there's an outcry from from the citizens, and they're like, you know, we want our swimming pool water to be clean and nice. And there's a salamander here, and you need to protect the salamander because they need clean and nice water. And so there was this political movement called the Save Our Springs movement uh, where people organized. They petitioned the city government, um, and they, you know, part of this was petitioning the Fish and Wildlife Service to list the species as endangered. So they were doing management practices like adding chlorine to the pool. They're, they're uh, power blasting all the rocks like where the salamanders would be. They would draw down the water of the pool to expose some of their habitat. This is just regular like cleaning practices to make the this this natural swimming hole more artificial and you know what people are used to, yeah. I guess. And so now the species was listed, the city needed an incidental take permit uh, to to operate this as a swimming facility. And so that's that's where they started. You know, they they had biologists go and and um, do more surveys to get a better understanding of the city or excuse me, of of the salamander. And sure. the city eventually developed a habitat conservation plan so that they could get uh, an incidental take permit to continue opera operation of Barton Springs Pool. And so that habitat conservation plan sort of outlines all of the conservation measures that we do to help protect those two species, the, the Barton Springs and the Austin Blind Salamander. Now, now that permit was given back in, in the 90s, and we just renewed it for another 20 years. So now it actually includes the um, Austin Blind Salamander, but effectively the measures are the same because the things we're doing affecting habitat and, and water quality um, hopefully help both species uh, equally. Cool. 
So some right. of the things that we're doing include uh, habitat restoration. So this is this can be simple stuff like we're going in and that we're removing silt and sediment because it deposits in these areas. They're they're impounded. Some of them they're they're not they're not the natural springs. As I mentioned, only one of the four springs that comprises Barton Springs is we can really call natural. So so the rest of them um can get a, a lot of silt build up and stuff that that wouldn't wouldn't occur naturally or, or that would get flushed out. And so we, we'll manage that just with with um, hoses pumping spring water, uh, or, or even with our hands. Uh, but then then it also can get pretty serious in terms of restoration because we right now we're in the middle of um, developing. Well, the plans are just about finished to restore some of the habitat. So in one of our springs, um, sort of bubbles out, and there's this amphitheater around it. It's called Eliza Spring. If you want to look it up online, and once it bubbles out, it goes into the spring pool, but the spring pool is then drained into the creek through a pipe that goes underground. This used to be a natural stream that flowed over land, and so what we're doing is restoring this stream. You mentioned a little bit about the public movement to create the or to, to lobby for the listing. In general, I guess how do people do people connect? How do people connect with? what is not the most outwardly charismatic animal in the world. Well, part, part of that formula here in Austin was, you know, because it's linked to the spring and the swimming pool that people so so love. Yeah. You know, it's and and so that was part of the the charisma of the species. It's not that it's just this pink wormy thing. You know, you put it, that, you know, that, that lives in some hole somewhere, but it's linked to I find the, them absolutely the, fascinating. I'm trying to put myself in mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, it, you know, it's linked to the water quality. And the other part of the story I didn't really mention is, is um, this, this spring that comes out in Austin uh, collects water from a 380-square-mile area south of the city. Mm. A okay. linear distance goes over 20 miles. Okay, so it's a big area. All right. But because it's this karst aquifer system, uh, you know, our scientists have done dye trace studies and found that water from this area, you know, even 10 miles away, 15 miles away, can reach the springs in just a few days. So that means – so there's not there's not a whole lot of filtration as far as we – you know, people think of aquifers like groundwater. Oh, you know, the ground, it filters, and then the groundwater is clean, and we can drink it. And, and in this case, it's like it just it's just kind of shooting through holes. The water when the rain yeah. comes. So when we're th we're thinking about like okay, storm water that's running off, um, anything that people are putting on their lawns, you know, fertilizers, pesticides. Um, if there's an accident, you know, there's pipelines that carry oil. If a pipeline bursts, um, oh. if a tanker truck spills, if a uh, wastewater main breaks that's carrying sewage, if sure. a water transmission main breaks that's carrying treated chlorinated water, if you have enough of it. Um, it can cause real problems, and so that was part of the formula for like, what are the threats to the species? You know, they're at this spring and they're in this big aquifer, but you can have some event that occurs anywhere in this huge zone um, pollute it. And so the sort of the other aspect of the of the public support and public perception has been the the citizens have approved bonds to purchase vast quantities of land in this area oh. in the recharge and contributing zone to protect it from development because. 
don't know if you know anything about Austin, but it is a booming city. Okay, so there's enormous pressure to develop a lot of, a lot of land, and, and the city, I think it's been $175 million, including bonds and, and money that was leveraged to purchase over 28,000 acres um, to protect not just the water quality for the salamanders, but for the springs, um, and also does for the, drinking water. I was going to say, does the city rely on these these aquifers for drinking water? A small a small amount of people do, and, and not all of them are within the city. Um, I couldn't give you direct stats on that. Most of the okay. city's water comes from uh, reservoirs and, and lakes that aren't associated with the aquifers here. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, then, and then the other thing I'd mention is the city does have a, our department has a great outreach program. So they, you know, as, as far as um, you know, citizens learning about these things, they reach thousands upon thousands of kids each year. Not, not just to talk about the salamanders and the aquifer, but general environmental stewardship issues and and just learning about the the environment in Austin. They get into creeks and collect invertebrates. They all they do all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, with school-aged children, and it's really kind of neat what they do there. If people hear this, um, I guess particularly in the Austin area, you know, but maybe some of this stuff can be general salamander-friendly things. Like, what do you? How could people get involved and and help out? Yes, yeah, so we, we, you know, we've had this question before, and I always struggle with it because, you know, directly, it's these are endangered species, so you can't say, "Well, go out and let me know if you have any salamanders in your backyard," because you need a permit to do that, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, in general, people can be good environmental stewards. And, and then to, to plug another one of our programs, we have a Grow sure. Green program. So if you're a landowner, you could just Google Austin Grow Green. And um, this has a bunch of information about how to be a good steward on your land, you know, avoiding pesticide and fertilizer use as much as possible or using it strategically rather than is, is normally recommended, um, growing plants that don't require excessive watering, uh, particularly during the summer, we have some mild water crises around here with all the droughts, and so yeah. um, that so that's for for Austin citizens. But really, anybody can go to the website and get the information. Back to Summers. So you've lived in Texas. I have. Well, I, I wouldn't say I've I've been there so much. I feel like I've lived there. Okay. Uh, I I'm there every year. Yeah. All the time. I love it. One of the things I thought was cool about this was just having a city sort of like rally around. Yeah. And you were saying about naming things about places. Well, you know, uh, people have said that if you name a species after a place, it's more likely to be preserved or conserved or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because I'm almost sure, and Tony can check my fact on this, um, that uh, the Baltimore checker spot is the Maryland State insect, I think. It's not named for the city of Baltimore. <laughs> it's named for Lord Baltimore's colors. The flag, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. But it also happens to occur in Maryland. And so it's a beautiful butterfly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you could imagine people saying, yeah, it's got Baltimore colors, right? So it's like orange and black. And, you know, we should totally, that's our, that's our butterfly. Stupid stories about sort of rallying around local critters. Yeah. I hope we don't... Part of me is like, ooh, we should rally... Like, we got the toads. Like, rally around something in Philadelphia, but we don't want anything that's rare. I mean, we don't want it to be rare in the first place. To we have things around. named after Philadelphia. We have multiple plants. We've got the Philadelphia flea vein, which is beautiful, and I grow it in my yard. Bunch of band. And there you <laughs> go, Philadelphia flea vein. Uh, we have Philadelphia lilies, which are also gorgeous, and they're not that common anymore. 
we'll wind up in a second, but I wanted to just say Mantas. Is there ways that people can get involved, or what can, oh, we, yeah. what can we look for from Mantas in the near future? Well, anyway, we have our website, um, and we will have a Get Involved uh, Support Mantas cool. uh, part of there. It is www.mantiz.org. Mantis.org. Great. If you're listening to this and you like the podcast, please make sure you, on whatever platform you're using, Stitcher, iTunes, whatever, that you rate us and like us, please, please, please do it. It helps us get the word out. Let us know what you think. Um, send us an email at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Hit us on Twitter at herbwildlifecast. Um, find us on Facebook and get involved there. If you want to tell us a little bit about what you are looking at around you, wherever you are, please feel free to record a little something on your phone um, and let us know about it. We can figure out a way to transfer the file. Um, or just call us at 267-603-3219. Leave a message. Again, that's 267-603-3219 for Wildlife Blade. And um, we will look at including it at the end of the podcast. My name is Greg Kirkez of Urban Wildlife Research Project based in Silicon Valley. And that is a gray fox. Here is her story. During the last week of April, out in the south San Francisco Baylands, we came upon the matriarch of the marsh, lying in the grass. Her name is Bold. She rolled over and began licking her raw stomach. We could see that she had been nursing. Bold was taking a break from the tiny pups and warming herself in the sun as it set on the pickleweed. Her den, a tall silvery-green alkaline salt bush, was in the background and inside her litter of pups. I wondered when they would emerge from the tunneled thicket and how many. Looking back, Bold was once a pup born in that same bush. I remember when she first emerged in 2012, a little gray fuzzball, and she gave her father squat a fox kiss on the nose. He too had been born in that bush. We came to call her Bold because over the next few months she developed from a shy pup into the alpha of the litter and a master hunter. She would live up to her name her first winter when just eight months old she fought her father for control of the natal den territory. The fight was over in the blink of an eye. Squat took off running and we never saw him again. After giving her own parents the boot she began looking for a suitable mate. We saw her with several different males that winter. In the end, she chose Gray, an ashy pup from a neighboring den, born that same year and also a master hunter. This year, it's Bold and Gray's fourth year together denning up in that old salt bush. They are descendants of a long line of foxes who have raised pups in that same bush. But that bush, like many others, is threatened by the increase in human activity and development. With our urban wildlife research, we hope to protect these urban spaces and species like the gray fox. Find out more at urbanwildliferesearchproject.com. And a big thank you to Urban Wildlife Podcast. Like, <laughs> we're like, oh, you like birds? Oh, three years ago I went to Yellowstone and saw an eagle. I'm like, I saw four of them hanging out of a dump. <laughs>